growing in God's Word, and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged, right? When someone takes Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and quotes it or paraphrases it or whatever to substantiate their belief that I can make my own choices in life, it's astounding to me. I've never heard somebody go on then to quote that within that same chapter, just five verses later, Jesus says this, Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You've probably heard someone say, you can't judge. We know that's what Jesus said, and often people use that verse as a way of justifying their right to live however they want. But is that really what Jesus meant? Is it possible that followers of Jesus are actually supposed to make some judgments? Five verses later, Jesus, in actuality, is calling us to judge, to make a judgment determination of where a person is spiritually and recognize that if that person is unwilling to receive or hear the message of the gospel, uh, Jesus says, you you have to judge it. You have to judge. And if they don't want to hear it or they want to make fun of it, he says, do not share the gospel with that person because the gospel is too precious. Hello and welcome to another edition of Crosswalk. We're in the book of Jude in our series, Building on the Basics, looking at the basic of judgment. A basic understanding of God's judgment, when and how and why, is crucial for a proper understanding of God and our relationship with Him. We've spent the last two sessions in Jude looking at three examples of God's judgment from the Old Testament. Learning from those judgments in the past, as we're going to see today, is important for our present lives and the need for us to judge what others are teaching us. As always, we're glad you've joined us for this important study of God's Word. Now here's Pastor Clay. are working on building on this basic of judgment and understanding. And for the last two weeks, we uh, covered, two weeks, right? The last two weeks, we covered the, the first idea from Jude that I wanted to bring out, and it was simply this, that we, we need to learn from judgment in the past, that, that there's, there's something that we need to learn from this. There must be, because Jude uh, as, and we read those verses, I'm not going to read those verses again, but Jude, uh, particularly in verses 5 through 7, he gives three examples from the Old Testament, and we're going to see today that he goes, he's going to give us three more Old Testament examples, but, but in 5 through 7, he gives us three Old Testament examples of where God brought judgment down, I mean, right then. He, he, brought, he, he brought the hammer down, and we, we looked at those, looked at why God brought judgment in those particular cases, and, uh, and some of the implications of that. Uh, for our lives. But you and I need to learn from judgment in the past. By the way, could I also say that it might be from my own life? As I, I can look back at my life and I can see times where God has, has, has brought something on me that wasn't very pleasant, where God has had to bring correction into my life or God has had to do this or that. Why? Because, as I say this all the time, as any loving parent would do, He brings discipline into our lives when we need it. Uh, when we mess up, there are consequences uh, to that. And it's because He loves us that He does that, right? Right? Right. Okay, so uh, learn from judgment in the past. All right, second idea that we want to launch into and cover uh, this morning looks like this, and then we'll read the verses. We need to live in judgment in the present. Why don't you all, why don't you all say, hmm? Yeah, right? Because that's like, what? Judgment? 
In the present? All right. <laughs> Let's read it together. Verses uh, 3 and 4, and then we're going to jump to verses 8 through 12. Thank you, guys. If I hadn't said it, uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I believe you've honored the Lord, and, um, and you've given me an opportunity to share what I believe God has, has shared with me. In verse 3, uh, Jude writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort uh, to write you about our common salvation... In other words, I wanted to write to you about our salvation, how we receive it. That's what I wanted to write about. But because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit impresses something else on him. Uh, While I had every effort to write to you, making effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Not kind comments that Jude has to say about those he's referring to. And then jump down to verse 8. Yet in the same way, these these men, those he just mentioned in verse 4, These men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Live in judgment in the present. Learning from from judgment in the past, absolutely. We can see where Jude's going with that. We can understand that. Uh, Learning about those examples, learning what God's intent was in those examples, learning why God brought judgment in those examples. Obviously, that's 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 cool, that's neat, that's good, uh, but it, it really, it doesn't make any difference, does it, if it doesn't in some way move into my present, if it doesn't in some way affect my life and how I look at my life and how I look at the actions that I make every single day at school, at the workplace, in the home, in my neighborhood, uh, whatever the case may be, it has to begin to affect my present. And so we come to this idea that, I, as I've said, living in judgment in the present. Now, as you hear that or as you read those words, you, your first thought may be, whoa, whoa, that's, that's, not, that's not cool. I mean, that's, that's not what we're uh, supposed to do. I mean, th- that doesn't go well in the culture in which we live. And you're certainly right. The idea of, of judgment, the idea of, of condemnation, uh, certainly doesn't fit well into a culture, into a society that has basically built this foundation to say no one has the right to say anything else is wrong. No one has the right to, 
to judge, right? Everybody, and I do mean everybody, loves to quote. They may be the most novice at Scripture uh, that, that there can possibly be, but everybody loves to quote Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, right? Right? Y'all probably even thinking that as I was, I was saying. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, right? We've, we've said that. Maybe you've had that thrown in your face. Maybe you've even used that from time to time to say, well, you know, it's, it's not my place to judge. I, I, well, I, I, I'm, kind of, I'm not sure what they're doing is right, but you know, it's, it's, not, it's not my place to, to judge. Now, let me say, there is some truth in that statement, and, and hopefully I'll get to that in just a minute. But when someone uses that, when someone takes Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and quotes it or paraphrases it or whatever, and they use it to, to substantiate their belief that I can, I can make my own choices in life. I can do what I want to do. I can say what I want to say. I can act the way I want to, to act. I, I can do all of those things, and no one has a right uh, to, to make a judgment. No one has a right to determine that what I'm doing is wrong. You can't judge me. You have no right to judge me. When people use that verse, it, it's astounding to me how they, ne- never, I've never heard somebody use, uh, go on then to, to recognize and to, to quote that within that same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, just five verses later, uh, Jesus says this. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Same chapter. Five verses later, Jesus, in actuality, is calling us to judge, to make a judgment determination of where a person is, in the context he's talking about where a person is spiritually, and recognize that if that person is unwilling to receive or hear the message of the gospel, it, 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 or, or, and or worse, they, they deride that message or they make fun of that message. Uh, Jesus says, you, you have to judge it. You have to judge the, the, the spiritual receptivity of a person that you're trying to interact with and engage with and share with. And if they uh, uh, don't want to hear it or they want to make fun of it, he says, do not. Don't think about it very often, do we? Jesus, do not share the gospel. With that person, because the gospel is too precious, too valuable a thing to let men trample it under their feet. Now, we should pray for those people that we encounter that are like, yeah, no, that not interested, don't want to hear it, or no, that's a bunch of phony baloney, or you know, I don't, I don't want to hear that stuff. We should pray for those people. We should pray that that the Spirit of God would soften their, their heart and their receptivity to the gospel? We should. We should pray that God would, would, would break them of their arrogance and their pride, whatever it is that's keeping them from being willing to, to at least listen to the message of the gospel. And perhaps we should, if the opportunity arises or we see something working, we should, we should have, take other opportunities to perhaps share with them. But in this context, at this point, Jesus says, if, if, they, if, they, if they want to just treat it like that, just no. No, you, you've got to make a, a judgment there. So when what verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7, and we'll, we'll come back to the text here in a minute. But what verse 1 of chapter 7 of Matthew is actually saying is, is what I do not have the right to do. What you do not have the right to do is to make a judgment or determination about a person, about their life uh, uh, based on or compared to your life. That's, that's the whole point. If you read on from there, Jesus says, you better get that whole big beam out of your own eye before you worry about that little speck 
in their eye. You can't look at another person and say, well, I would never do that. Look, I'm clearly superior to that. Per- I mean, I know we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that, but that's, that's what a person often is thinking when, when there's this judgment made of, of their life or where they are or the mistakes they've made or, or what they're involved in their life. Jesus, you don't have the right to determine what they're doing is right or wrong. He's absolutely right about that. No one has the right to judge what is right or what is wrong. Only God has that right to judge what is right or what is wrong. You can think of it this way. Here's the way I put it. We, we don't pass judgment on others. We pass on judgment to others. In other words, we share with them. We lovingly tell them, hey, here's what God says. In his word. I, I, I'm no better than you are. I'm no worse than you are. I'm, no, I'm just telling you. Here's what God says about this situation. Or that decision that you've made. Or, or that direction of your life. Or, or that sort of thing. No, we don't pass judgment on others. But if we care about them. We pass on judgment to them. So that they know. How do they know? How will they know? If we don't share with them. So, there has to be this judgment in the present. In uh, in the book of Jude, uh, and really the books prior to that, if you were, happen to be with us, we went through John's letters and Peter's letters, particularly Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, you, you may remember that, uh, that there's a lot of discussion about these, these people, uh, these uh, false teachers that are influencing the, the church, inside the church and outside the church, but they're having their influence and they're, they're causing people uh, to go against God. Their sin was the same sin that we discussed last week, really with the angels, but it, it, was, it was rebellion against the authority of God. They're rebelling against the authority of God. By the way, in there, uh, Jude makes this reference to Michael uh, getting into this uh, dispute, I think the way the text says it, this dispute with, uh, with Satan. Do y'all remember reading that just a second ago? Yeah, listen, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it is in the text, and, and so people oftentimes wonder, so we should deal with it. This is the only place in Scripture. We have no other biblical reference to this uh, battle royale between the archangel Michael and Lucifer. This is the only place to occur. So we know nothing more, really, than what Jude uh, tells us about this encounter between the two of them. We do know from Deuteronomy, I think, chapter 34, we do know that when Moses died, God took God personally took Moses' body and buried him. And the text tells us buried him in a place where nobody else knew. We can assume that Satan wants to, to find Moses' body, have Moses' body, or at least locate Moses' body so that he can then influence or tempt the nation of Israel to turn the, the, the burial site of Moses into a shrine, which they almost certainly would have done, and thereby become guilty of idol worship. We can assume that that was Satan's motive for why he wants the body of Moses because he wants to distract. By the way, it's kind of a side lesson in there for you and me. Satan doesn't care what you focus on as long as it's not God. So when he said, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not into devil worship. He don't care. I really think he doesn't care. He doesn't care if it's a if it's an interest, if it's a hobby, if it's a career, uh, if, it's, if it's even a relationship, your children. He doesn't care what it is, a failure. 
a success. He doesn't care what it is. But when that thing or that person or, or that whatever situation, when that becomes the focus of our life, when that becomes the thing that, that you know, you know what I'm saying? That you just, you gnaw on and you center around and you do things off of. And that, that in that moment, in essence, it becomes our object of worship. And, and we have to be careful of that. But the point of Jude's reference to Michael and the archangel is that even though Satan had fallen, even though, you know, he's the, the, the bad guy uh, at this point, at one time he was not. At one time he was the greatest creation, apparently, that God, the creature God ever uh, created. And it was his beauty and his intelligence uh, that caused him to become prideful and think that he could rise his throne above God's throne, that, that passage there in Isaiah uh, uh, and so he was at one time uh, this, this beautiful, intelligent, powerful uh, creature. And, and so the, the point is, what Jude is saying about Michael is that even Michael knows that even though Satan may be fallen, but still this is God's business to deal with, with Satan. It's not, it's not my place to have to, uh, to bring a railing against him or to, to go, the, this, uh, the Lord rebuke you, is what, is what he says. He says, I'll just, I'll just let God. So it's still getting back to that idea of authority, that there's this, there's this place of authority in the world. The, the teachers, the false teachers, were abusing that, uh, that authority and they were using it to distort the truth of God's word. And so look at what Jude says, I think there in, in verse uh, 3. Yeah, he says, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith. Listen, I, I know theological accuracy is, is not the most glamorous thing in the world, but, but it becomes vitally important for our lives to understand what we believe, why we believe it, why it matters for our lives so that we can, as it says there, contend earnestly for the faith. The, that phrase, contend earnestly, carries the idea of laying it all on the line, putting it, leaving it all out on the battlefield. Every ounce of who I am, I am in this, and I, and I'm, I won't quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm, this, this, this is all I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to pour into this. I'm going to contend earnestly for the faith. You know, it's so easy in my life. I don't know, maybe you struggle this take. It's so easy for me to get focused on, on the things uh, that I've got to do or the things of, of this world or the, the things that, are, that, that my family needs or whatever the case may be. In essence, it can be so easy for me, maybe for you, to contend really for my own kingdom, for my own needs and wants and desires and all those kind of stuff, and how do I take care of that, and how do I pay this bill, and how do I do all this kind of stuff? It can be so easy for me to, to become kind of sidetracked by that and contend earnestly for that. And Jude says we've got to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. This is war, ladies and gentlemen. This is war. There's a spiritual war, a spiritual battle that is going on. Obviously, Satan is this kind of ultimate enemy, if you will. But the human agents in which he's using are these deceptive, destructive, uh, false teachers. And here's the deal. And stay with me on this, okay? But here's, here's the way I've, I've put it. Here's the way I put it. In the battle uh, of right versus wrong, good versus evil, righteousness versus unrighteousness, there is no Switzerland. 
Would y'all say that? Would y'all say there is no, there is no Switzerland? Now, Switzerland's a beautiful country. I, I have been there. So it does physically exist. <laughs> but here's what I mean, spiritually speaking. Switzerland is what is known as a nation of permanent neutrality. I think that's the, actually the, the legal term. They are a nation of permanent neutrality in both World War I and World War II. In fact, in all wars since 1815, Switzerland has maintained an official policy of permanent neutrality. They have said, and this is what they say to the world, uh, essentially what they said is, hey, it's not our fight, it's not our business, we're just going to stand on the sidelines, it doesn't involve us, we're, we're out of this. Ladies and gentlemen, in the spiritual battle for the souls of billions, billions of men and women on this planet, there is no Switzerland. There is no permanent neutrality. You and I are called, are commanded to pick up a weapon and stand at post. We are called to engage the enemy and to be a part of this understanding that we are going to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so uh, Jude begins to launch into, as I said uh, earlier beginning, he gives us three more Old Testament examples of uh, to help us understand what this means for our lives and how we contend earnestly for the faith. And we'll start with the first one, uh, looks like this. It's the way of Cain. You, we, you can go back and read it. We read it a few moments ago, but it's the way of Cain. Guilty of rebellion against the path to God. Cain was guilty of rebellion against the path to God. You'll find his story in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain and his brother Abel bring a sacrifice to God. Abel brings a, a, a lamb without spot or blemish. He sacrifices a lamb and he brings that lamb as he had been instructed by God uh, to do as a sacrifice. It, we, we may not like it. It may sound, oh, that's, that's terrible. That's, that's bloody. That's whatever. But it, the, the point of the sacrifice was twofold. One, it was to show the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of my sin. That another is having to give its life to cover my sins. And secondly, and probably even more importantly, to point to the reality that someday the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was going to come and He was going to offer up His perfect sinless life to pay for all of our sins. Yeah, amen. So here it is, uh, Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God because it was based on God. It was based on the instructions God had given to him. It was based on what God was ultimately going to do. Cain brings a sacrifice from the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer and he brought his vegetables, he brought his fruit, he brought whatever he brought. But that's what he brought before God. And to be honest with you, I'm sure that Cain's sacrifice looked much more pleasant than Abel's. I'm sure his, I'm sure his sacrifice was, was prettier. I'm sure it, it looked better. And, 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 it, and it, it, it cost Cain something to bring the sacrifice to God, didn't it? But therein lies the problem. It cost Cain something to bring the sacrifice. And that's a sacrifice God will never accept. Cain's sacrifice was rejected 
because it was based on Cain. It was based on, well, what's the good I can do? Or, or how much work can I do? Or, or how, how can I please God in such a way that, uh, that he'll let me in? Or something like that. Listen, that, that, that's, that's what Cain was guilty of. That's what the false teachers were guilty of. That, and inside the church, outside the church, you know this is true. Billions, billions of people have been led down the false path to God. The path of, of works, the path of I can do it, or I, or I can be good enough, or I, my, my own abilities, or something like that. And it's a lie. The false teachers were teaching people that somehow that they could manipulate, or they could, have, they could create the situation so that they could gain God's approval by that. that and, and Jude said, no, no, not that. That won't work. It's always the same path. It's always been the same path. It's the path of grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And any other path, listen to me, any other path, attempted path to God is, is not only futile, it's, it's rebellion against God. Because it, it's assuming that I can be good enough to gain God's approval. And God said, no, that, that's not how it works. It's based on me. So that, that's, that's, uh, that's Cain's problem. The second one that we deal with is the error, what he calls the error of Balaam. Balaam's guilty of rebellion against the plan of God. Uh, Numbers chapters uh, 23 and 24, I think, and 22 and 23. Numbers chapter 22 and 23 is where you find the story of uh, Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God. Uh, Balaam apparently had done some good things, but Balaam gets to run in with this guy named Balak. And Balak uh, convinces Balaam, he, he bribes him, he, he Balaam sells his, pro- his prophecy abilities, he sells them to Balak. Because Balak wants him to curse the nation of Israel. He wants to bring a curse down on them. Now, if you've read the story, you know that God turns uh, Balaam's curses into blessings. But the point is, Balaam thought he could, he could change God's plans. See, Balaam was for hire. Balaam, it, for Balaam, it was about the money. The, the money was more important than honoring God or serving God. That that's what became. And that, that opposes the plan of God, ladies and gentlemen. It opposes the plan of God. Wealth and money and uh, all that kind of stuff opposes the plan of God. Whoa. Back up the bus. Claire, are you saying that God wants all people to be poor? No. No. It's certainly plenty of places in Scripture where God says He wants to bless people, and, and He certainly does that to the extent that, that He chooses to do in His sovereignty and it, what He knows is good for each person. We, we know that God does those things. But what I'm saying is, what, what Jude is saying here is that, that wealth or money or, or just this, this pull of this, this material possessions of the world. That's not the plan of God. That's not where he wants our focus to be. Do you understand? That's not it. He has something else in mind for us. Really, when it comes down to it, there are only, there are only two things God expects of us. Uh, first one is right focus, right? The, the, the world, the, the things of the world, the objects of the world, the, the whatever, and I, you know, I know, I know what this is, but, but it's always pulling at us, right? Right? Yeah, y'all ever, it's like, ooh, ooh, shiny. That's, that's how it is my wife's I'm about guitars. Ooh, ooh, shiny, shiny. It, it's like, I must have, I, right? The world, the, right? The world pulls us. It's all that kind of stuff. And God says, hey, 
that's not my plan for you. Maybe you've read these words in Colossians chapter 3. It says this, since you were raised from the dead with Christ, aim at what is in heaven, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Think only about the things in heaven, not the things on earth. Your old sinful self has died and your new life is kept with Christ and God. Christ is your life and when he comes again, you will share in his glory. What's he saying? And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that this is what God would desire for our life because all this stuff that, that we think we have to have or we can't live without or, or that, and I've said this a bazillion times, it doesn't mean we can't have nice things, it doesn't mean we can't, you know, it, it's, it's not what he's saying. But when that becomes the object of, of my attention, think about it, all, all of this stuff, what is it, I, I say this, I haven't said it in a while, but I say this a lot. All of this is destined for dust, isn't it? I mean, it really is. It's destined for dust. And and so it makes perfect sense that God would say, why would you devote all your time and effort and energy into getting that or just get, or or a little bit this or just a little more of that when all of this is going away? All of this is going away. Doesn't it make so much more sense to focus up here on the eternal, on on the rewards, on on this real place, on this this plan that I have for you that will never go away, where, where uh, I think as Jesus puts it, where moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. It's, it's, the, it's the right focus. God, here's where my focus ought to be here. I'm always getting distracted down here. And I know I have this, but, but God, here's, here's, my, here's where I want my, my focus uh, to be. Watch this. That's what God wants in our life. He wants, wants the right focus. Second, he wants real faith. He wants real faith. See, this is the problem with the wrong focus. The wrong focus causes us to have faith in the wrong thing. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And I just mentioned this either last week or week before last. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. Faith is this central key element of this relationship with God. And without it, we, there's, there's no way we can walk in right uh, union with him for this. He wants our faith to be real. Let me ask you a question this morning. And it requires that you be honest with yourself. You don't have to answer out loud or anything. But you got to be honest with yourself. Where is your faith? When it comes to your needs for this world, your material needs, your whatever, where is your faith? Is it in God or is it in your checkbook or your job or your career or your 401k? Now think about that a minute. When I've asked that question, and I've asked that question before, I have said, and sometimes one-on-one I've asked that question to people, and oftentimes I've gotten a response something like this. Okay, pastor, we get it, I get it, I understand, I understand I'm, I'm supposed to have faith in God, but I also have to live in the real world. You ever heard that? Oh, yeah, I know, I'm supposed, to believe it. I'm supposed to believe in God. But I also have to live in the real world. Oh, I've heard that. When somebody tells me that, now they probably don't realize this, but when somebody tells me that, I know what they've just said to me. What they've just said to me is, whether they realize it or not, what they've just said to me is, I have to live in the real world, but my faith doesn't. And ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying to you is, our faith has to live in the real world or it's not real at all. It's not real law. If I can't trust God for, for a job or, or for finances or to pay this bill or, or that, if I can't trust him by living in obedience in, in that area of life, what in the world makes me think that I can trust him about eternal things? If I, if, I, if I don't think I can even trust him for temporal, for the temporal things of my life. 
You understand what he's saying? It's, it's the error of, of Balaam. That, that, that the focus is on money or resources or riches or having this or, or I got to have that or I won't, you know, won't be able to whatever. Right focus, real faith. That's, that's what we want for our lives. Okay, I, I know I got to hurry. Got to hurry here. Let me get the third one. It's the rebellion of Korah. And I can't give this one without, in some sense, probably sounding self-serving, but it's in the text, so I have to deal with it. The rebellion of Korah, he's guilty of rebellion against the person for God. Um, where's the reference? I can't remember. Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, uh, this guy named Korah decides that he doesn't like where Moses and Aaron are leading the people of God. He's, he's not happy with it. He doesn't, he doesn't like it. He doesn't think it's good. And so Korah gets a group of guys uh, on his side and he convinces them, hey, Moses is not, I don't know where he's taking us or this is, we're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> We're in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where he's taking us. This is ridiculous. Uh, we don't need to follow him anymore. And he gets a group of people to side with him. And, and then that group of people then tries to confront Moses and tries to get the people, all the rest of the people, to come over to their side. Not a good idea. Because they were not rebelling simply against Moses. They were actually rebelling against the authority that God himself, God's authority, that he had given to Moses to lead the people of God, yes, out into the wilderness, but it's exactly where God wanted them. It's exactly where God had to take them to prepare them for the land that he was going to take them to. Let me just say this. It did not end well for Korah and his buddies. If you want to go back and, and read that in number 16, it did not end well for them. And then Jude takes his example of Korah and he applies it to the false teachers in the church. If you remember in John's letter, John was naming people by name that were not submitting to his authority as the pastors of the church. They weren't happy with the way, with what John was teaching them, the way he wanted to take them, or Peter or Jude or whatever the case may be. And so they were rebelling against the person that was, that was representing God. I was trying to lead, lead the people. I, like I said, I can't say that without sounding self-serving. I'm just telling you that that's the example that he gives. That's part of what the teachers were doing. They were saying, oh, yeah, I know, John, yeah, John's saying this, or Peter's saying that, but you don't got to listen to that stuff. Listen, listen to me. Here, here's, here's, what I, here's what I say. Here's what I think. This, this fits a lot better. This sounds a lot better. This will make us a lot happier, whatever the case may be. So those are these examples that he gives. And I know that's a lot to say. I know it's a lot to cover those uh, three examples, but it's important because look what he says in verse 12. I think it's in verse 12. He says, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Reefs, uh, hidden reefs, uh, what, he, what he's saying is among your love, he's just saying they're, they're right in among you. They're right there with you. Remember, context is different back then. The church literally met together every day. They, they almost lived together. In many cases, I'm sure they, they did. But they were together constantly. They ate their meals together. They shared together. They served each other. They studied the Word of God together every day. How would you all like that? It was a glorious thing. They loved it. I know that's not our context. The church, at least in America, does not meet together every day. Maybe we should. Maybe that would be a great thing. But we don't, okay? But the principle is still the same. The false teachers are there. They're in the church. They're out of the church. They're everywhere. And they're misdirecting the people of God. Hidden reefs is this, is this, this reference to the fact that and if you've ever been on the ocean, if you've ever been around a reef out in the ocean, you know this is true. Everything can look fine. Everything can look calm and look placid. But, but underneath the surface, that's where the danger is. What Jude is saying is these guys will shipwreck your life if you follow them. They're like clouds without, without rain. Rain was very important in that part of the world. They needed it all the time, just like we do. And a cloud might build up and it might look real powerful and ominous. And we had that the other night at our house. It looked like it's going to just 
come a just big old rain and then we ended up getting nothing out of it. He says, that, that's what these guys are. They, they look like, they look impressive, but in the end, they've got nothing to offer you. Watch out for them, he's saying. And then finally, the, the trees. Autumn time, that's when you'd expect to find the fruit, right? And he says, these guys are doubly dead. Not only do they have, do they have no fruit on their branches where they should have, not only is there no fruit, there's no root. They're, they're not rooted in the authority of God. And so they're, they're, just up, they're easily uprooted. And I'm telling you, that's what Jude said. I'm telling you, the same thing is going to happen to you if you follow them. You're gonna, your life is going to be uprooted by this. Stay grounded in the authority of God and his word. That's what he's saying to you. Because the world will take you everywhere and anywhere and up to anything. And Jude's saying, here's the authority. You've got to follow God. You've got to do what he says. All right, let, let me just share this. Uh, the other night at staff meeting. <clears throat> oh, i got to quit. The other night at staff meeting, uh, I, I went around the room. I was asking staff members to just share examples they've had lately to uh, share their faith, give out an iVite card, uh, uh, Invite somebody to come to church. Uh, by the way, it's not the staff's job to do that. It's everybody's job uh, to do that. Uh, but I, I think it has to begin with the leadership of the church. We have to be doing it. And so we go in a room and some people were sharing opportunities and things that they'd had and ways they'd been able to minister to people and that sort of thing. And Cale told this story about uh, him and a buddy of his. Uh, Cale, is it okay if I tell this story? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I, see, it's, I've always lived by the principle it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. So, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, no, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he really doesn't care. So he tells this story about him and a friend of his going to play Frisbee golf. And they were discussing just some of the social issues of our time, some of the things that are going on in our society, our culture, all that kind of thing. As they got out of the car, they're talking about saying, some guy uh, in the parking lot there with his son overhears them talking about these things, and, and he, guy com- he comes over to them, which is, you know, often find that total stranger comes over to him hey you guys talking about the some of the social stuff some things are going on in in our culture and that kind of stuff and they say well yeah and and he launches into you know what he thinks or all this or what's causing that or this kind of everything and uh, and then he turns to kale and he says what do you think and uh then kale takes this beautiful opportunity to say well i i i i think that the social issues the the problems that we face in our society are tied to sin. And, and he just, I, I, I wasn't privy to the entire conversation, but he launches into this, this spiritual conversation about sin and, and God's purposes and came to redeem and, and all that kind of, whatever all Kale shares uh, with the guy. I'm not trying to embellish the story. Whatever all he shares with the guy. But when he finishes, the guy says, uh, well, I didn't really want to get into all that spiritual stuff, man. But hey, that's, that's cool for you. That's, that's cool. And, and Kale was absolutely right on when he then said to the guy, he says, listen, for me, I, I can't separate those two. I can't separate our, our material physical problems from the spiritual solution. They're inseparable with me. They're, they're one in the same. He's absolutely right when he said that, ladies and gentlemen. Ultimately, it's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual battle. And ladies and gentlemen, in the battle for the spiritual souls of billions of people, there is no... Switzerland, you and I are called to this battle. Let me, let me just close it with this. We are called to be engaged in this. We are, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, if we profess to be his, we are the watchmen, if you will, on the wall. And the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 33 says this. 
But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. It is our calling to be engaged in this. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's oftentimes confrontational. We should speak truth. We should speak truth lovingly and, and, and compassionately, but also passionately say, no, listen, God says this. Here's what God, I know you say this. I know you believe this. I know you think this, but here's what God says. I, again, I'm, I'm no better than you. I'm no worse than you. I'm just a sinner who happens to be saved by grace. And I'm just showing you God loves you. And here's what he says is his, his direction and plan for our lives, for our culture, for our country. You see, ladies and gentlemen, these ills that are going on in our country, do you think they're just social ills? No, it's a satanic attack on the very authority of God. It really is. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a black-white thing. It's not a, a, a rich-poor thing. It's not a Democrat-Republican thing. It's a forces of darkness against forces of light thing. Well, there you have it. In the spiritual war going on around us, there is no Switzerland. Perhaps you've never heard it put that way before, but I think we can all understand what Pastor Clay is saying. God does not allow us to sit on the sidelines or pretend that it's not our business. If we are a part of the kingdom of God, then the kingdom of God is all of our business. In Jude's day, they faced many false prophets, and we can look around us and see that not much has changed. The enemy is always trying to lead people astray. We have an obligation to join the battle for truth. So, Are you ready to stand at post? Are you ready to earnestly contend for the faith? We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross.
A new church for people like you. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.